right. Um, good morning, everyone. Yeah, so we, this is the second uh, uh, week of, second Sunday of 2020, right? Uh, Happy New Year to all of us. Um, let us pray. Thank you, God, for today. We pray that uh, you'll be able to use this moment to speak to us. And we pray that uh, in our own lives, we'll be able to be challenged by uh, your word as it comes. Pray for each one of us that uh, these things will be fruitful in our lives and as we continue trusting in you. In Jesus' name, I have prayed. Amen. Amen. So um, here at uh, AIU uh, College Community Church, we have been in the book of Acts for, I can't give the actual count, but quite some time. So we've been um, in this book. And uh, as we go through it, one of the striking features that we have been seeing, or actually we've been looking at it in the lenses of uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So uh, you will receive power, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, or the utmost parts of the earth, if you like. So that's what we have been able to see. And by that mission, by that mandate, uh, we have been able to see the disciples' or the uh, apostles' um, commitment to that mission. And more than that, we have also been able to see God's faithfulness in paving the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached to the regions that uh, Jesus was able to commission his apostles to. So um, today we're going to see, as we conclude the book of Acts, we're going to see one of uh, uh, the stories that um, uh, Luke is able to record. And, and Paul is on his way to, to Rome, but something again, God's providence brings, paves an opening or opens a way for these people to preach uh, the gospel at, at Mortar. So we'll see uh, Paul and companions' ministry at Mortar, and also we'll be able to see what Paul was able to accomplish once in Rome. So just to bring us to speed, we know that in, in chapter 22 of Acts, uh, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He had brought the, the, the um, contribution that he, or a donation that he had gathered in Europe, coming back to Jerusalem and he was arrested, uh, falsely accused because of the injustice of the Jews. Uh, although the Roman um, governors were, wanted to pardon him, but the Jews insisted and wanted to kill him, and Paul uh, appealed to Caesar to go to Rome. And last Sunday we saw my brother did a very good job, uh, Kennedy, in uh, uh, showing us the voyage that was happening uh, from Caesarea to Rome, what happened with Paul. And now they have been in a storm for about 14 days, and they have landed, not really landing, but they have crashed, actually, at this, at this port. Uh, I don't know if I can call it a port, but a beach on, um, on mortar. So this is where we are, and we will see the opening that God provides and the, the, the uh, sharing of the gospel, as we will be able to see, accompanied by many signs uh, that God allowed Paul to perform there. Once safely on shore, verse, chapter 28, verse 1, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Mota. Okay, so uh, the name itself, um, there are two opinions on what this name might mean. 
uh, some think that it originates from the um, activities of the natives who were beekeepers and of course they uh, liked a lot of honey. So probably it originates from uh, the name honey in that lo their local language. Uh, but also the other opinion is that uh, the Phoenicians in the earlier times when they were conquering land, uh, they used this island to be able to, to restock themselves when they conquered land and they come back and, and, and restock themselves, their military and all that. So in that sense, they called it the place of refuge. Okay, so uh, to Paul, I think that the latter would be more meaningful that it's a, and his companions, that it's a place of refuge, that they, they found a refreshment, that they, uh, they found a relief after the storm and, and coming to this island. And also, uh, these people, the islanders in verse 2, uh, there's no evidence that they, are, they had heard the gospel, okay? So you will see their response, their theology, when uh, Paul gets beaten by a snake, uh, their response, it, it looks like they had little knowledge about God Almighty or the God of the Bible. And also, Luke himself does not t uh, tell us that they are believers. But the next stop that they are going to make, he will say, we made believers there. So uh, he may be contrasting with uh, the former group that he, he just made. Also, we can see the manner in which Paul and his companions go to this island. It looks like God's provision, God's opening, that these people might be able to, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, one striking feature about these people is that they are very kind. Right? This is what Luke is able to record. They are kind and hospitable. That's what these people are. That's what uh, we, we can describe them. They are uh, kind and, and uh, hospitable. So it was raining when these people uh, crashed there and you know it's in the winter, it's very cold, but they were able to welcome them and, and uh, uh, put up a fire for them. Verse 3, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the uh, snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time, and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So, uh, first of all, we'll be able to see Paul's uh, humility here before we go to, to that scene uh, of him getting beaten. But you will recall in verse, chapter 27, those of us who were with us, you will see that Paul had begun to win some honor among his, the men there. So they had begun to revere him, to show him some respect. But here, once on shore, Paul does not ride on that, uh, that opportunity. He does not, in other words, he doesn't take advantage of that to be able, of course, he's still a prisoner, but he, he's not uh, trying to act bossy. He still goes out to be able to, to save others, go the, go, goes out and gather the, uh, the, the wood that is needed for the fire. So in that case, Paul may be teaching us that to be uh, available for uh, and to be able to, to serve, to be able to show humility, uh, even as, as we live in a community, to be able to, to serve others, no matter what our position may be, 
no matter how great the Apostle Paul was, but he still found a, a place in his heart to be humble and to be able to save other people in community. Now, interesting enough, even when Paul is faithful in doing that, he still is meeting trouble, right? Uh, and he's been, he's been on the sea, he's been in the storm, but still trouble is coming after him. And, you know, the, the, an average person's response would be, not again, God, like, I've just been in the storm. And this is a snake bite now. Okay, but we will see from, uh, from Paul here, he doesn't complain about that. So which tells us that even in our service, even when we are uh, faithful in, in doing that, we'll still meet trouble in this world, right? We'll still be able to, to, uh, to meet challenges. But what comforts us is that God is with us right there and that he is protecting us at that moment. We will see Paul here was also able to be moved by uh, the previous reminders by God. God told him to, to, uh, that he will go to Rome. And if he was dead by a snake bite, he can't stand before Caesar, right? So Paul is still confident. He knows that, well, this is a snake bite, but more than this, God has said something. Okay, so this cannot stop me. This cannot be more than what God has said. Okay, so there's a place for us to be able to be driven by what God has called us to do in our lives. And by the way, there's going to be people, okay, like the islanders here, who will be able to judge us by circumstances sometimes. And, and that's what we do as human beings. We judge things according to circumstances sometimes. You will see in the Bible, uh, Job was judged by circumstances, by his friends. You must have sinned. Why is this befalling you? Or the blind man in chapter 9 of John. The disciples, they don't take time to say, well, what happened to this man? They say, they just they said, who sinned? What? It's not like a calamity is a direct consequence. It's always a direct consequence of sin, right? That's, that's what we're able to see here. It's not a direct consequence of sin, but as uh, human beings, we usually jump into that. Jump into that. Uh, but Paul here uh, shows us or reminds us to be careful of what other people say about us, to be able to evaluate it. And sometimes people raise us to a position that we are not. They said Paul was a god, or they said he's a murderer. And sometimes what people say, if we're driven by that, you know, we may miss the mark. We may begin to elevate ourselves because somebody said I'm a god, or maybe I'm this, this high. You know, but I can imagine, although Luke does not record here what Paul's response was, but we know elsewhere in Lystra, in chapter 14 of the book of Acts, that Paul and Barnabas were referred to as gods. And what did Paul do? He stopped the people. No, I'm not a god. I'm not a god. So I can imagine the same response uh, being given by Paul here. So it's a call for us to be careful of what other people are talking about us or what they ascribe to us. Paul was neither a god nor a murderer. Do you know who he was? He was a minister of the word of God, commissioned by God. That's what he was. That's what God told him in Acts chapter 9 uh, when, uh, when he encountered Jesus Christ. So uh, it's a call for us to be able to... to to know our place. And sometimes, really, when people misjudge us, there's nothing we can do, right? There are times when even our response doesn't make sense. 
And in those moments, we can just pray that God will be able to vindicate us in, in his own ways. God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do in this circumstance. But because it is you who has called me, and in my personal life, in my ministry, I let God define who I am and not what other people are able to, to say about me or to be carried away by what other people are able to say. Now, does God speak through other people at the same time? He does, right? Uh, but he cannot speak in a way such that he is contradicting himself or the word of God itself. Okay, we know that we are not gods. Okay, so if somebody says you are a god, you evaluate it through scripture. That's why we need to have a truth. What is true about me? We, we, we talk, uh, uh, he was sharing about we are creatures of God, right? We are not gods in ourselves. We have been created. So... Look to where someone is evaluating you. Does the Bible say that I am that? No, I am not. So you'll be able to uh, respond in light of what the scriptures say. So it's a call for us uh, to be careful at the same time, uh, not to be able to evaluate other people in circumstances, and also to be able to, uh, to be careful of what other people are able to uh, raise us to or... Um, raises down too. Now, when they say that, uh, I just want to point out, when they say that justice has not allowed him to live, uh, there, the word is uh, decay, justice, referring to the goddess, Greek goddess, decay. So they are really saying that the divine goddess, the god of divine vengeance, has not allowed Paul to live. Now, you will recall that God Almighty had rescued Paul to the shore, right? He's the one that has brought Paul there. But these people, they have no idea of what is happening in Paul's life. They're just, they're just saying things based on their own evaluations. And they don't know what God is able to do. All they know is that there's a Greek god of justice, a goddess of justice, and really maybe she is the one who is punishing Paul in this circumstance, because they assume, because they have heard that Paul is a prisoner, perhaps, and also has been beaten by a snake. So they are saying he doesn't deserve to live. He's supposed to die, because this is, they're assuming that this is a punishment from a Greek goddess. But we know that God had told Paul where he was going, and that is what was keeping Paul moving at any given point. Uh, let's get to verse 7. There was an estate nearby uh, that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with all the supplies we needed. Okay? So, there it is again. Uh, a little act of, of obedience from Paul. Uh, so, this man, Publius, is probably maybe a proconsul, maybe a governor on behalf of Rome on this island, but then his father is sick. So 
Uh, many are able to believe that uh, this was kind of uh, an outbreak at this time. Uh, but anyways, this man is sick, and they're calling for Paul. Uh, they didn't really call for Paul, but Paul went there to go and check on the man who was sick. So we see that an act of, act of uh, kindness and one act of obedience, how much fruits it was able to bear. Okay, how God was able to multiply Paul's willingness to go and see the sick man himself. Which again could be uh, a very good in, uh, encouragement to us or a reminder to us that we never know how much God is going to use the little things that we get involved in, right? That our willingness, in this case, Paul's willingness to go and see and pray with this man who was sick erupted into something big. I wouldn't be surprised if I heard at the end that uh, a church was built at Mota here because of what Paul is able to record. He says that he, they had built a strong connection with the people because of one act of uh, obedience by Paul to go and see the man. And God was able to work through Paul in, in accomplishing that and bring about uh, healing in the lives of uh, many others. Now, up to this point, I want to make uh, one clarification, or rather one point that I want to, uh, us to see, is that uh, this passage, uh, so Paul's getting beaten by a snake and him not getting uh, swollen, and also him being able to uh, heal other people, uh, you know, sometimes they get abused, right? But we should know here that it is God who is doing the healing. It's not Paul himself. Uh, uh, God is healing through Paul. So you'll be able to see that in some circumstances, Paul himself said, you know, in, in, in Timothy, First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 4.20, he said that he had left someone, Trophimus, Admiratus. He left him sick. And you say, why wouldn't he heal him? Because he's an apostle, right? But he left some people sick. Or someone in this case said, I left him sick. Or when he was in the storm, why wouldn't he come it if he wanted? You know, so it is God working through the apostle. Now, this scene could be a perfect uh, uh, fulfillment of what Jesus said in, in the book of Mark. So, Mark 16, verses 15 to 18. And by the way, you also have to be reminded that uh, that passage uh, does not exist in some manuscripts. Okay, so we'll take it that it's here. It would be a very, very good uh, fulfillment uh, of Jesus' words about his, uh, his disciples or the believers or the apostles in this case. However, there's an abuse of, of, of such a passage where people are able to tell the congregants to drink poison in order to, for them to demonstrate the power of God, right? Like demonstrating God's power. Go and catch a snake and let it bite you. And it's just unthinkable. We have to be reminded here that Paul did not go looking for a snake. That's not what he did, right? He picked a snake, and the snake, uh, not intentionally, but the snake uh, beat him anyway. Now, today, people are able to tell the congregants to drink insecticides, such as, I don't know, doom, in the name of wanting to demonstrate the power of God. And that is like tempting God, right? Because we, uh, because we, we know that God is able to deliver us, but we are saying, let's do this and see if God is going to deliver us. And just to, to remind ourselves, God is able to deliver us 
when he wills, right? And how he wills, and in accordance with his own will. So if we just do things for the sake of doing, instead of demonstrating God's power, we'll be able to allow doom to demonstrate its poisonous power on us. So let's be careful in that sense uh, with what we do in the name of demonstrating God's power. What we are supposed to do is to be available, is to be faithful, so that God can demonstrate his power through us. We don't tell God to demonstrate his power. God himself, in his own ways, in his own manner, demonstrates his power through us. So don't go out there hunting snakes so that when it bites men, we have very poisonous snakes here. Uh, if you want, maybe you can go and look for a mbobo right outside here. If you see it demonstrate power on you. After three months, verse 11, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figure, uh, figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed uh, there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putiori. That's an ac uh, Italian accent for you, by the way. Uh, there, we found some brothers who invited us to uh, spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him, the canal. I want us to know that Paul had a very long-standing desire to visit Rome, okay? So when this happens, I can imagine him, you know, uh, making that sigh of relief. That finally, I am here. Finally, God has allowed me to come. Now, however, I, I want you to, uh, to open with me to the book of Romans and see how Paul had planned his, his travel to Rome. Okay, so let's go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15, starting verse 22. Okay, so this is why I've been often been hindered from coming to you. So he's explaining about his ministry in other regions. Uh, verse 23, but now there's no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. After I have enjoyed your company for a while, after I've accompanied you, uh, I've, I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem, okay, uh, in the service of the saints there. Uh, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the, to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they, were, they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Now you can see Paul's prayer here. This is three years okay, before where we are right now. About three years he's in Corinth. He plans to go to Jerusalem and by the way when he goes there this is where he gets arrested to be where he is right now. Okay. So, but his prayer primarily was that you know, he would go to Jerusalem and be able to help these people. And he says that, that God will be able to help me through the unbelievers. And so he, saw, so he saw some danger there that he might be arrested. Or, you know, there's a danger for the unbelievers in Judea to kind of pounce on him. So he's able to perceive that. But he says that, I also pray that God's will may be done in that case. But Paul's plan was that he'd go to Jerusalem, smoothly do what he wanted to do, and then get on a ship perhaps and go to Rome, uh, on his way to Spain, see the people at Rome, and then proceed, uh, proceed further to the west. But look at the manner in which Paul got to Rome. It's, it's a little bit different, right? It's not as he planned. But it says here that he was, anyway, encouraged. Now, I want us to know that uh, sometimes, you know, all of us have, have uh, visions. God have, has read, laid something on our hearts, right? He has at least shown us somewhere where we, he wants us to be. He wants us to save. At the same time, he has not revealed the details how that thing is going to come about. And it takes... Uh, the faith takes faith from us. It takes us to trust in God that he will be able to bring about such a thing. If we don't know the details, we trust that God himself knows. Look at how Paul was able to elaborate. He says, I'll go to Jerusalem and then I'll, from there I'll go to Spain. He didn't know how. He was probably imagining something. But then he goes through a storm to Rome. He goes through... Uh, a ship. He goes there as a prisoner. Can you imagine that? But anyways, did he get to Rome? He did, right? God brought him there, but he didn't know. There was no detail as to how. In fact, Paul would have been imagining something else. So a challenge to us that we be able to trust God even when things, we don't know the details. When he has called us in that ministry, we don't know how exactly how it's going to play out. But we trust that God himself knows and that he will safely bring us to where he wants us. Did Paul meet challenges? Yes. But God protected him enough that he would get to where he wanted him to be. And that is a challenge for us, that we be able to trust God even when 
our planning, you know, we can make our plans. This is what uh, Proverbs is able to say. But then there's also a place where God himself, in his own sovereignty, when he sees, as he sees fit, will be able to help us to help, uh, carry those plans out. Is it always sweet? Probably no, right? But because it is God himself at the center, we can be comforted in that sense. So it is a calling for us to be able to trust in God, trust in God, even as we make our plans, be able to trust in God, that even if I've made this plan, but God, I know that you're sovereign, and you are able to do what you, are, you want to do at, at a given time, for your glory and for my good. Second thing is that Paul is overjoyed, or in other words, he's encouraged. That's the actual word. He's encouraged by seeing these brothers. Now, he had wanted for a long time to see them. Now, you know, Paul himself was a great encourager, right? But he was not the beginning and the end of encouragement, okay? There was a place where he needed someone to come along where he needed other people to minister to him. So he's encouraged. In Romans, again, I'll read in Romans chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, see what Paul is able to say. Okay, let's start in verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged. So when Paul gets to Rome, he's expecting those believers to be able to minister to him at the same time as he ministers to them. So he's not this superhero or superhuman. He's a human being, though a great encourager, though greatly used by God, but in need of other people to be able to minister to him. This is what we are able to see. Paul was encouraged at seeing the Romans. Part of it is that he wanted to see what is going on in the lives of the Romans. He was, Paul is a person who was happy with the progress of others in the faith. And he's able to recommend them. He's able to commend them for what they, they, they are doing in the faith. And also he wants them to minister to him. I want you to be able to be an encouragement to me just as I am to you. So this is a calling for us. No matter what ministry you do, no matter what position you are, but in the body of Jesus Christ, we are all uh, equally together, there for one another. We don't do this ministry, we don't do the Christian work as lone rangers. That we may find a place for other people to be able to minister to us, that they, they also can meet our needs. Notice there that Paul says, I want you to assist me, right? Maybe probably he's talking about financially, we don't know. But it could be in prayers too. It says, be praying for me. So there's a place where other people can be able to minister in our own lives. Whoever we are, but in the body of Christ, we all have been given the gifts to be able to build up one another in the body. And this is what Paul is trying to demonstrate to us. Amen. Verse 17, three days later, he called together the elders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans 
to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason I have, for this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Now, of course, Paul is under house arrest, but we know the strategy of Paul. What he used to do is when he gets to a city, he'll go to a synagogue, right? First thing, go to a synagogue. Why? Because elsewhere he's able to write that uh, uh, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, right? The promise of the Messiah had come through the Jews. Now Paul wants to let them know that their promise has been fulfilled, that Jesus Christ has come. So he wants to use that as a stepping stone before he preaches to other people. Salvation must go to the Jews. The Jews themselves, they know these things better. In this case, though, Paul was under house arrest, as we are able to see. So unable to go to a synagogue. So in this case, he calls these Jewish leaders to come to him and that they may dialogue, okay? In other words, he's preaching the gospel to them. But as we are able to see, Paul declares his own innocence, talking about how his coming was as a result of the unbelief and hard-heartedness of the Jews, not as his own rebellion. He's not against Judaism, as the Jews have been able to, uh, to purport. So he says, I'm not against Judaism. The thing that is separating us is the hope. He says that I'm preaching the hope of Israel. And what is the hope of Israel? The Messiah. That's what they've been waiting for, right? Who is the Messiah? Jesus Christ. He's saying, it's because of Jesus Christ that I'm being persecuted. Because of Jesus Christ that the Jews have pounced on me, that the Jews have arrested, uh, they, 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 uh, they arrested me in Jerusalem. And although I was not found guilty, they insisted that I should be killed. And this is why, because of their injustice, I've been compelled to appeal. So in other words, he's saying, I'm not a rebel. Okay, because the Jews elsewhere, you will notice their response is that where, wherever we have been, this sect, they're talking about Christianity, is spoken against. Now, that's not entirely true, right? But they may be referring to the Judaizers, right? Because they had been scattered all over. And the Judaizers are these guys who looked at Christianity as maybe a watered-down version of Judaism. So they were looking at Paul as a guy who lets people become Jews on compromised standards. So they are not really happy about that. But Paul is preaching to them. He's going to show them, as we will see, the evidence that Christ had come and that they must trust him because he's the one who died on the cross and that the events said in the scriptures, that is the Torah and the prophets, are true about Jesus Christ. They find their fulfillment in him. This is what Paul will be able to, to argue with, with the Jews. However, they actually they don't like the thought that the Messiah died on the cross. This is what Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. He says that 
preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to, to, to the Gentiles. So they are not for the idea that their Messiah died on the cross, but Paul says that is how we get our sins uh, paid for, that the Messiah died on the cross and he rose, and thereby opening a way for us to come to, G to, to the Father. So they say that this sect is sp spoken against. So they said we have replied uh, in 21. They they replied we have received, uh, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers have come from there. Uh, who has come from there have, has reported or said anything bad about you. So they are also saying, okay, you also have to understand us. We are not against you. So. Paul is saying, I'm not against Judaism, and they're saying, neither are we against you. We are against what you're preaching. That's what they're saying. We are against what you're preaching. That's what the, uh, the, their response is. So they say, but we want to hear, want to hear what your views are, for we know that uh, the people everywhere are talking against this sect. So that's what we just saw there. They, they are talking about Christianity, that Christianity is spoken of against. And of course they are referring probably to uh, what the Judaizers, who are other Jews elsewhere, are able to, to say about uh, Christianity. Now Paul makes it clear here, and we will see later on, when he makes an emphasis on, on his case about Jesus Christ, that the Jews must believe in Jesus Christ just like any other people, group of people. They must believe in Jesus Christ and they must see that the Messiah has come. What was said in the Torah and in the prophets has been fulfilled. Verse 23, so they arranged uh, to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning to evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So there it is. Paul is persuading them, persuading them from the law and the prophets. Now this time probably there was no the New Testament. This is the Jewish scriptures themselves. Probably Paul has a lot of manuscripts gathered around him and is able to say, when I, what do you think when Isaiah talked about the suffering servant? What do, you, what do you make of that? Don't you find that true in Jesus Christ? When it is prophesied that the, 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 uh, the son of David would come from Bethlehem, what do, you, what do you make in line with Jesus Christ? When Isaiah talks about the mighty one, what do you make in line with Jesus Christ? So he's able to build uh, these evidences to to show that the events surrounding Jesus Christ are true with what was said in the scriptures. And the Jews themselves must be able to see that because they are well familiar with that. Now you see the, what is actually the, not the common, but the, maybe the natural response or the natural pattern of responding to the gospel. In, um, uh, 
Some were convinced in verse 24 by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had said this final statement. So we'll look at the statement later on. But they disbelie some disbelieved and others believed. So this goes to say that our duty is to earnestly present the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot dictate the response of the hearer, right? But as the Holy Spirit lays it on their hearts, as they get convicted, now they may get, they may harden their hearts, they may choose to not believe, but it's not, we are not called to make them believe. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to work on their, but on their hearts. But we are called to present the gospel with honesty, showing them their need to make the decision. And he says that Paul presented the kingdom of God and he persuaded them. In other words, after pro providing evidence, he still stood further. In other words, tried to negotiate with them, show them the need of them making a decision concerning this. Show them that uh, this is it. And what you decide on this has a consequence on its own. So it's persuading them. And later on, we see that some believe and others don't believe, which is, it's, you know, a common pattern of response. In Jesus' time, some people believed, some did not. In the apostles' time, in our time, people, some people believe and some don't. And we can pray for those that don't believe that continuously they'll be able to see what the Holy Spirit is, is laying on their heart. Now, let's go to the quote itself. It's from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. So after Paul said these words, that's when they departed. Probably they, they, became, they became angry, some of them. So the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to these people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For these people, people's hearts, has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Okay, now let's look at the circumstances surrounding what I... What what Isaiah is writing here. So we know that this is followed by the, uh, the vision of Isaiah. Now, God is telling him to go. The circumstances that it's going to minister, the northern kingdom of uh, Israel, we know that the kingdom at some point splits. Now, the northern kingdom, which is usually called Israel, was under threat by the Assyrians. And of course, it won't be long after they are captured but also the southern kingdom as a result. In other words, it's this time of shaking among the Jews, among the Israelites. But then they're trapped on whom they're going to trust. They're making alliances with Egypt. They're making alliances with the Assyrians. Now, Isaiah is going to come and tell the people to be able to trust in the Lord in light of the impending judgment, in light of the uh, impending calamity, 
By the way, the Assyrians are going to raid the northern kingdom later on, very soon. And the southern kingdom will be conquered by the Babylonians. So Isaiah is saying, turn to the Lord, trust in the Lord. But of course, God says that I know that this word to those who are boastful, boastful or pride or greedy, they'll disregard it and harden their own hearts. And so they will not listen. So go and preach to them. Go and preach to them. But I know that they will not hear my word. Even when they hear it, they will not turn. If they turned, I would listen to them and save them. That's what they will. So it's, it's, it's this, uh, in short, it's repent or perish. But then the response of the people is that of no repentance. They have hardened their own hearts. So Paul is likening that situation to his contemporary Jewish community. He's saying, this is what happened long ago. And you see what happened. There was judgment that befell our nation, that we were raided by foreigners, that we were raided by these Assyrians and the Babylonians. In light of the pending judgment that is coming, Paul could be making that, that statement. In light of the pending judgment that is coming, if you refuse to believe in the Messiah, what is your stand? Do you think God will spare you? It's making a case that the Messiah has come and done all what is necessary to be saved, for us to be saved. If we do not choose to believe in him, what is your stand when that day comes? So that is what Paul is able to, to preach to them, that the Jews must turn. He uses the word turn there as Isaiah used it, they must turn, they must trust in the Lord, they must not trust in themselves. What about us today? Are we sitting in here unrepented, perhaps? Are we sitting in here disregarding the cause of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, disregarding what he has been saying to us? What are we going to do in light of the coming judgment when Jesus Christ comes again as a judge came as a savior and is going to, to come as a judge to, to judge the world. That's what the Bible is able to portray. If you look at Revelation, you will see that when the Messiah comes, when Jesus Christ comes again, he will judge the world. Where are you going to stand? It is a call for us to be able to, to heed to what the Holy Spirit is able to speak to our hearts just like he did in the times of the Jews. In this case, Paul may be saying, remember what happened to your forefathers, and you are heading the same direction. You have to turn and trust in this Messiah who has come. Verse 28, therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Now Paul here is saying that all people must hear this message. This is, this is the nature of the message. Since you have rejected it, then it will turn to the Gentiles. And, the, and he says that the Gentiles will hear it. So that's, that's, that's uh, what Paul's dialogue with uh, 
with these people was the Jewish community there, and we see uh, that they, they are able to, to disregard, some of them are able to disregard the message of the gospel. However, uh, Luke continues and says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you will say, well, we thought that Paul went there for a trial and, and then we don't get to, to hear what happened to Paul. Well, uh, so first of all is that the, the book of Acts is not about Paul, right? It's, it's about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that, probably that's why Luke concludes with him preaching the gospel. It's not about, it's not an autobiography of Paul himself. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the mandate in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that they will be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, uh, tradition and scholars are able to uh, suggest that Paul was acquitted after two years, appeared before Nero, and he was acquitted, and he went on to preach the gospel elsewhere. This is where people believe that he perhaps went to Spain as he, as he willed, as he wanted before, as he planned, actually. So, but we are, we, are also, we are also able to see from the manner in which Paul writes to Timothy, in the second letter especially, that in his own old age, perhaps, was put in another uh, prison. And this time, it wasn't a house arrest. But So for some reason, Paul was rearrested after he had gone somewhere and preached. We don't know what what exactly happened, but it's believed that he was rearrested, and this time he was put in an actual prison. But this time, however, Paul shows us uh, something that is uh, a bad circumstance, or maybe, uh, I don't know what word to use, but a difficulty, a difficult moment turned into an opportunity for Paul himself. So we, we see that during this time, it is believed that Paul wrote letters that, that are now scripture. He wrote letters to the Philippians. He, he, he wrote a letter to the Philippians. He wrote a letter to the Colossians. He wrote a letter to uh, Philemon, or Philemon, if you like. Uh, so those are what they call the uh, prison, prison letters, and the Ephesians as well. He, he wrote during this time. And you know, I, I found it interesting that in, in Ephesians, Paul actually talks about the, the armor in Ephesians chapter 6. Perhaps he's looking at this God who is next to him and maybe writing that as he, he looks at the, uh, the, the, the God, the soldier. So anyways, Paul here is uh, showing us when Luke says that he was there preaching the gospel and also from what we know that he was able to write during this time shows us that in the difficult times, we can still look around and find an opportunity for us to be able to serve. We can't just be hampered if we are serving God by the difficult. We know that life is going to throw things at us. But even in those moments, we can still look around and be able to be productive and be able to be fruitful. Is it going to be easy? No, it's hard. But Paul is challenging us that even in a prison, he was able to write a letter. Even in a prison, he welcomed those that were able to come and, and he preached to them. So a challenge to us to be able to make 
ourselves useful even in the hard times, even when it feels like we are hitting the dead end, that God is able to sustain us at that time, we can still find a moment in which we can minister. We can still find a way in which we can minister. We can find, look around and see an opportunity. Of course, like I said, it's, it's not going to be easy, but Paul is challenging us that we can do that. We, with God's strength, with God's uh, sustenance, uh, we can do that. Now, Paul, uh, Luke, ends with preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus. He says that, boldly and without hindrance, preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. This tells us what we preach when we preach, right? Preach about Jesus Christ, nothing else. Preach about Jesus Christ. That's what matters. And Luke says that this is what Paul did in, in the years, in those two years. He was able to preach about Jesus Christ. Now he says the kingdom of God. Now elsewhere, when Jesus is teaching his disciples, he says, I pray that the kingdom of God will come as it is in heaven. Now what is the kingdom of God? The rule of God himself. We know that we're looking forward to the time when the kingdom of God will fully realize. But even now, God is reigning in the hearts of men, right? That is his kingdom, his rule in our hearts. That we'll be able to preach to people. Now who are these people in whom God is reigning? Those who have believed. So we preach about Jesus Christ, and when men come to believe that the kingdom of God is upon them, that God begins to rule in their lives. And this is what we preach, that men be saved, that God begin to rule in the hearts of men, that his kingdom be established in their own personal lives. Even as we look forward to the fully realized uh, uh, kingdom of God himself, uh, when all is dealt away with. But even right now, God is reigning in the hearts of men, and that is his kingdom. That we'll be able to preach the rule of Christ in the people that do not know him. And as per Acts 1.8, it still remains a call to us to be able to preach about Jesus Christ, to be able to uh, preach the kingdom of God, so that God himself, that people may find God and they might find his rule in their own personal lives. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for today. We praise you. We thank you uh, for the study that we have been in the book of Acts. We thank you for each one of us. We pray that you give us the strength that we need to be able to minister to other people. Also, to be able to come along other people to encourage one another and be encouraged by them. Pray for unity as we go on as a body of, uh, of Christ, as we go on in preaching his kingdom. In Jesus' name I have prayed. Amen.